This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Make the bad people good and the good people nice is supposed to have been a child's prayer. It makes the point with proverbic brevity that there are details of character small enough to escape the mesh of the law and the broadsides of the prophets, and yet decisive in personal dealings. Proverbs moves in this realm, asking what a person is like to live with or to employ, how he manages his affairs, his time, and himself. This good lady, for instance, does she talk too much? That cheerful soul, is he bearable in the early morning? And this friend who is always dropping in, here is some advice for him. And for that rather aimless lad, Derek Kidner helpfully defines for us what biblical wisdom is. In other words, Proverbs is here to help us live with God-honoring competency in the gray areas of life when there's no law telling you what to do. In other words, wisdom is Christ-like refinement. I like that descriptor of the book of Proverbs. It's there to refine. It's there to help you conduct your affairs in God's world with shrewdness and soundness. Now, when we're talking about wisdom, we're not necessarily talking about someone who's a genuine believer and someone who's not. That's not the level at which Proverbs operates mostly. There can be wise Christians and there can be foolish Christians. They share a common ground by being joined to Christ by faith. They have that in common, but they are different. Some may be wise and some may be foolish. Now today, the wisdom writer introduces us to another of the many facets of wisdom, and that's the matter of sluggardness. The word sluggard is such a fun word, I could not resist preaching on this thing. He's actually one of the main characters in the book of Proverbs. He appears and then disappears and then reappears throughout the book. And as we'll soon see, the sluggard is not wise. And the way in which he is described shows us that not all wisdom is conveyed through niceness. Time and again, there is the bite of sarcasm as the sluggard is described, rebuked, exhorted to change course. The sluggard lacks the kind of Christ-like refinement the Proverbs are there to instill in us. But not all hope is lost, obviously, because God gave us the book. He gave us Proverbs to show us what Christ-like refinement looks like and to exhort us to ask for it and pursue it. But what is a sluggard? I still haven't told you. Well, it's not a bug, a grub, or an insect. Here's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at nine characteristics of a sluggard. 
and three formation tactics to an act. And suddenly two points become 12. (laughs) No worries. This is no longer than any of my other messages. Nine characteristics of a sluggard. Are you ready for a sprint through these? Let's do it. Characteristic number one of a sluggard, procrastination. Proverbs chapter six, go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come on you like a robber and want like an armed man. This is where the wisdom teacher doesn't mind using words as cattle prods, much like he does in Ecclesiastes. The sluggard is a procrastinator. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? In other words, you keep putting this off. And the contrast is actually humiliating. You've got a person over five feet tall, weighing in at least 130 pounds. And uh, they're told to uh, bend over and let an ant be a teacher. An ant, less than a quarter inch long, weighing in at slightly less than an ounce, fraction of an ounce. You've got this person with gifts of speech, a brain the size of a whole anthill, is told to peer down and learn from the lowly ant. The irony is powerful. The ant who symbolizes wisdom has no need for a supervisor, a parent, or peer to tell him to get moving, get working. So one of the differences between wisdom and foolishness is initiative. Wise people are self-starters. They don't put things off. They get going without being prompted to do so. Now, one of the things that you'll see as we work through this message, really the rest in this series, is that where 21st century America, we chalk things up to personality traits, the scriptures don't do that. I don't even know that the scriptures think in those terms. They make matters of wisdom or foolishness or even matters of morality. So we can smirk at our lack of initiative. We can talk, chalk it up to a personality trait and never think for a moment it needs refinement. But this is a matter of wisdom. The sluggard, the fool, is a procrastinator. Second, the sluggard is characterized by a lack of planning. Look at verse 8 in chapter 6. She prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food at harvest. So the wise are giving forethought to when tasks need to be started so that they may be completed at their appropriate time. So a wise person may ask when something needs to be completed by, but they don't wait until the night before to get started. Students, that's what the sluggard does. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 4, the sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest, and you get jack squat. You got nothing. So even though the deadline is months out, they don't leave it until the last minute. They get started long before. Wise people, in other words, wise people, plan. Jesus himself, wisdom personified, was an advocate of planning. 
Luke chapter 14, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Now, the immediate application in this passage is before you decide to follow Jesus, count the cost. There's a cost to following Christ. Count the cost. But work the logic in reverse and you realize Jesus is promoting planning. No builder wants to be mocked for starting but not completing a building project, all due to a lack of planning. No battle general wants to be defeated on the battlefield for a lack of planning. The wise builder, the wise general, plans. The sluggard does not. Third, third characteristic of a sluggard is a world of wishing. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. So the sluggard may say things like, well, I wish I was more disciplined with my time, but they never actually get around to working on it. The slugger may say things like, well, I should pray and I should read my Bible daily, but they never get around to working on it. The slugger says, I should get started on that project for work, but they never do. They live in a world of wishing, but nothing happens. They never get around to it. So the slugger may be characterized by a genuine desire for diligence, but it goes no further than desire for diligence. Charles Bridges, writing in the 1800s, says this, The sluggard desires the gain of diligence without the diligence that gains. So the sluggard has the desire for the things that come by diligence, but they lack the diligence required to obtain those things. They live in a world of wishing. Oh, I wish I was more disciplined with my time. I wish I was better at planning. Oh, I wish I was. But the sluggard never gets around to it. They remain in a world of wishing. Fourth, the sluggard is characterized by excuse making. You'll like this one, parents. Proverbs 22, verse 13, the sluggard says, There is a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. Proverbs 24, 13, the sluggard says, There is a lion in the road. There is a lion in the streets. Now listen, there are a number of different words in the Hebrew language for lion. The one that's used in both of these passages are used of lions that were not known to exist in Israel. Much less behind the city wall. It's an excuse. The sluggard is skilled at finding excuses for not working, initiating, facing a challenge, etc. The quandary of this excuse making, however, is that the excuse to the sluggard looks reasonable. Airtight. After all, there's a lion out there. They actually see lions in the street. But to everyone else, the excuses are preposterous. What are you talking about? (laughs) There's no lion out there. There was a pastor who was telling a story of working this out in his own life. He said, I used to get up at 4 a.m. to run with my youth pastor. But I would love the mornings it rained because it gave me an excuse not to run. It was the best of all worlds because I didn't really feel guilty about bailing since, well, I can't do it anyway. It's raining outside. (laughs) But I could have gone to the gym instead. It's the same with excuses for work. 
People who ask for benevolence often tell me, I'll do any job that's available. I just want to work. Then I say, okay, I know the manager at the grocery store over on Main Street. I can get you a job tomorrow stacking shelves. And they will say, oh, I can't do that. I've got a back problem. And they say they will do anything, but unless it's a desk job making $60,000 a year with full benefits, they shoot down every job idea I have for them. That's an excuse not to work. The best scenario in our own minds is to be able to convince ourselves that we are hard workers without having actually to expend the energy to be a hard worker. It's one of the keys about being lazy. You often don't know or think that you are. You think you're a hard worker when actually you're not. There's another aspect to this excuse-making to notice, and that is why does the sluggard choose to see a lion? I think it betrays a posture of fear. I've not been able to track this down all the way, but I think there's a correlation between fear and sluggardness. Fear is the thing that often prevents inaction. So the sluggard often suffers from irrational fear, which prevents him from acting by offering preposterous excuses. Fifth, the sluggard is characterized by covetousness. Proverbs chapter 21, the desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. Literally it reads, all day long he covets greedily. In the original, all day long he covets greedily. So just because sluggards struggle with inaction doesn't mean they lack lack desire for the things that action can acquire. So the wisdom writer is clear. The sluggard has intense cravings, intense cravings for money, possessions, but as we have seen, they refuse to plan and act in such a way that money and possessions could be obtained. Now, when you put these things together, the sluggard often waits for what? Handouts. Because the waiting is prompted by covetousness. So if that's the case, what happens when the handout doesn't come? Anger? Despondency? Shock? So again, Proverbs pushes us to see the sluggard not as a personality trait, but as a moral issue. It's not a temperament. It's a character flaw. Sixth, the sluggard is characterized by proving to be an irritant to others. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 26, like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. Double comparison. So the writer's really piling up here. Piling up. Vinegar to teeth, smoke to eyes. Comparing two things vexing and hurtful to the body with that which is frustrating and damaging to social relationships. The sluggard disappoints, irritates, exasperates. David Hubbard puts this into 21st century jargon as he describes this. He says, Our dependence on others in societies where division of labor is a way of life proves most frustrating when those we count on for an important assignment, plumbers, electricians, administrative assistants, stockbrokers, pastors, fail to do their work on schedule. Sluggards are unreliable. They don't earn the trust of those around them to complete their assignments on time and in the manner so desired. As a result, what happens? There's smoke to the eyes, vinegar to the teeth, an irritant. 
7, the sluggard is characterized by neglecting things. Proverbs 24, I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Paints a picture, doesn't it? Sluggards have aspects to their lives that are neglected. It may be the home, the house, the grounds. It might be their jobs that are neglected. It could be marriages, relationships with kids. It might be their walk with Christ that's neglected. Physical health is another one. There's a true story about a man named Bob who worked at a tile warehouse with his girlfriend. Bob missed work once a week, was chronically late, and took a bunch of breaks every day, lasting half hour each. His girlfriend missed work every third day and never gave advance notice. And when they were fired, after many warnings, Bob was furious. The observer of the story concludes convincingly that too many today are quote-unquote immune to hard work. That what used to be thought of as good, reasonable jobs are now seen as demanding and unreasonable standards. The result, as the writer writer of Proverbs points out, the result of this is social decay. Sluggardness is not a private issue that impacts nobody. It has collateral damage that comes with it. The writer of Proverbs is smart pointing this out. This is not just something that impacts the person or those immediately in their orbit. It leads to social decay. Eighth, the sluggard is characterized by unfinished projects. You'll love this verse. Proverbs 26, 15. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. Hmm. So when the sluggard is successful at starting something, it doesn't mean that they've broken out of their sluggardness because the project may be left unfinished. Now, the imagery the wisdom writer is using here is ridiculous on purpose. The idea of someone reaching into a bread bowl to retrieve bread to eat during dinner but failing to bring it back to his mouth is as ludicrous as the sluggard's propensity for unfinished projects. So sluggards, what happen? They don't stay at jobs long. You may find that they blame the job itself rather than their own lack of stick to Once he gets to work and bumps up against some difficulty or resistance, all motivation vanishes, and the sluggard retreats back into ease. So this sluggard is someone who has a growing stack of half-read books on his desk, a host of home projects still awaiting completion, Multiple promises to friends and family left unfulfilled. A collection of almost written articles in the queue. And a gym membership that hasn't been used since January of 2018. (laughs) Sluggards struggle to finish things. One last characteristic. The sluggard is characterized by unteachability. Proverbs 26.16, the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. So he's not only lazy, but he's unteachable because he deems himself wise. 
Number seven is likely not literal here, but symbolic for completeness. In other words, there's this vast cadre of discerning, sensible sages who can explain the sluggard's problems to him, but make no dent in his faulty thinking. The sluggard is often unteachable, unmoving. Now, these nine descriptions of the sluggard reminded me of the animated movie Wally. Wally's a cute story about a curious robot whose job is to clean up a trashed earth. While humans once inhabited earth, we, we soon discover that they have been evacuated from earth with the hopes of returning one day after the robots clean up the mess. And though a hardworking robot, Wally has a rather lonely existence. But that changes when Wally meets another robot by the name of Eve. Wally quickly gains a fondness for his newfound friend. And Wally enthusiastically pursues Eve to the point of making an unplanned journey via spaceship to a high-tech space station where humans who have made a real mess of planet Earth are now living a utopian, carefree, work-free existence. As residents of the space station, humans are waited on hand and foot by robots attending to their every whim and desire. And as a result, the pampered humans have become self-indulgent, bored couch potatoes. With the passage of time, adult humans now resemble giant babies (laughs) with soft faces, rounded torsos, stubby, weak limbs. The result of human beings doing nothing but cruising around on cushy, padded, reclining chairs, their eyes fixed on video screens, taking in large amounts of calories and sipping from straws sticking out of giant cups. The creators of Wally explore many important themes, but possibly none more compelling than what it means to be human. Wally reminds us that a do-nothing couch potato existence is repulsive and dehumanizing. There is nothing human about these humans in this story. As human beings, we were not created to be do-nothings. We were created with work in mind. So, what do we do about this? How do we address this? Well, let me suggest three formation tactics. Three formation tactics. First, see the effects of sluggardness. I want to derive these not from what we can think of, but what do the texts bring up as possible ways to form people out of sluggardness. Proverbs chapter 24, I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Now watch. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. Now, we're not sure if the passerby is himself a sluggard. But one thing is clear. Gazing at the effects of sluggardness opened him up to instruction. 
Maybe one of the formation tactics we ought to consider in trying to mentor or disciple a sluggard is to point out the effects of their sluggardness. Make them look at it. Draw their attention to it. Maybe set up a contrast with someone who's not and the things they've worked on as a result of it. Let them see the difference. Sometimes purposefully staring at the effects of sluggardness opens up the sluggard to instruction. That's formation tactic number one. Number two, the threat of poverty. Proverbs chapter six says a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Very interestingly, these identical words are given to us in Proverbs 24. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Repetition for the sake of emphasis. In fact, there are at least, at least 14 Proverbs that relate idleness to poverty. At least 14 that relate idleness to poverty, lacks work ethic to poverty. In Proverbs, poverty is the result of sluggardness. Now, other wisdom books talk about other causes of poverty, but not Proverbs. In Proverbs, financial security, not necessarily excess, financial security belongs to those with disciplined work ethic. And it issues this threat of poverty to the sluggard. Now, this phrase, Protestant work ethic, I know it comes with all sorts of political baggage these days, but its original genesis is in Proverbs, the Protestant work ethic. Now, I need to make this qualifier. Some people are impoverished due to Injury, illness, physical limitations, that kind of thing. Proverbs assumes the sluggard is capable. It doesn't lump those with physical limitations into the category of sluggard. It assumes the sluggard is capable. Third, the New Testament work ethic. The Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians has an extended, let's call it a diatribe, against The sluggard. He writes, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone else's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly, and to earn their own living. 
So Paul is citing his own example of labor and toil. And he urges these believers to work with your hands, to obey the command, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Anything less than this constancy of labor violates the creative purposes of God. It it forfeits our role as as co-regents of his world. And it brands us leeches on a society which we are obligated to support with the means and the mind and the might that God's given us. Hubbard writes again, he says, hard work ought to be the normal routine of us who serve a carpenter Christ, who follow the lead of a tent maker apostle, and who call ourselves children of a father who is still working. I have an acquaintance from my past who was a first grade teacher, and she told me about an interaction she had with one of her students on the first day of school. Accustomed to going home at noon in kindergarten, Ryan was getting his things ready to leave for home when he was actually supposed to be heading to lunch with the rest of the class. And Linda asked him, well, Ryan, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm going home. And Linda tried to explain that now that he's in first grade, he would have a longer school day. So she said to him, well, you know, Ryan, you're going to go to lunch now. And then after lunch, you're going to come back to the room and you're going to do some more work before you go home. And Ryan looked up at her in disbelief, hoping she was kidding. And when he realized she was not kidding, that she was serious, Ryan put his hands on his hips and he demanded, who on earth signed me up for this program? (laughs) Well, Ryan, (laughs) God did. The moment he created you, you were made to be industrious, disciplined, planned, helpful, teachable. Now, as we close, I want you to remember one last truth. The Apostle Paul calls Jesus both the wisdom from God and the wisdom of God. Jesus is wisdom personified. Jesus is antithetical to the sluggard. Proverbs is here to instill Christ-like refinement in us. Question, why? Why is it not enough? Just save us. Give us our ticket into heaven. And leave us to ourselves the rest of our lives. Why did God save you, Christian? Why did he save you? Ephesians chapter 2, Paul gives one of the many answers to that question. He says, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Christian, we've we've not been saved just so that we'll go to heaven when we die. No. God saved you through the precious blood of Jesus Christ in order to form you in Christ 
into his image and his likeness in the here and now, right now. You were created in Christ to live a life of Christ-like refinement to the glory of God. Let's pray. Ephesians 5, a little later in the same book. Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Lord, this is an often neglected aspect of being a follower of your son, Jesus particularly in a world where we have every comfort and every convenience. What often gets lost in this or how we are subtly formed is to think that a life of ease is the goal. Lord, I pray that you'd free us from that. Repaint the picture in our minds and our hearts of why you formed us in the beginning You made us to be your image and likeness, the image of a working God. So, Lord, as we recontemplate that, I pray that you'd show us the places in our lives where we have succumbed to sluggish tendencies. I pray that we confess that to you. We'd receive the forgiveness that is offered us in Christ Jesus. And that through your word and your spirit, you would continue to form us and shape us into people who live with Christ-like refinement, even down to the detail of how we make the use of our time. Lord, we want to image Christ. It's our desire. And so I pray that you'd empower us for that great end all the way through, Lord, that you would magnify Christ in it all. In his name we pray. Amen.